One of the reasons what sparked my, my desire to, to speak today is uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we uh, on the calendar was uh, known, what is known as Reformation Sunday, uh, the last Sunday in October. And I, it's one of my favorite uh, days. Not, it should be a holiday. I think it should be a, a worldwide holiday, uh, personally, but that's just me. I, I enjoy history. I enjoy especially church history and that section of church history, the Reformation. And some of it is a personal thing because during the Reformation, we'll get into that in a little while, as you notice in your announcement sheets there, I'm speaking out of Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and I've titled the message, Contending for the Faith. That's certainly out of Jude's epistle. And then the second part is lessons from the Reformation. And for me, the Reformation is a special time in human history because I was rescued by the gospel light that the Reformers rediscovered at that time. And we'll get into that as we move on. So today is a special day, I think, as we look back a couple of weeks to Reformation Sunday, and not only that, as we remember our veterans for what they have done to preserve our freedoms, to do this today, as we do week after week after week. And I want to to help us think and remember to not forget. Remember to not forget. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at out of Jude's epistle today. If you look at, you take a, a Bible concordance and you look up the word remember or remind, you'll see it all over the place that we need reminders. We need them. And so we'll, we'll uh, look at our text. So here we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, we thank you for the Lord's Day again, that we can come together in freedom and sing to you, sing by songs and hymns made by men of the past who loved you, who wanted to preach the gospel through song. We thank you for giving us the ability to sing to you as a congregation. And so now, as we look into your word, we pray that you'd help us to, to learn the truths that are in it to not forget our heritage in the gospel. Handed down from Genesis to the time of Jesus, to the apostles, and even into church history, even into our own day. We thank you for this day. Teach us, help us to learn what you have to say to us through your holy word. For it's in Jesus' name, and for his glory we pray. Amen. I was reading this article this week, and I wanted to just share some of it with you. I thought it was uh, very interesting. The article starts, goes like this, quote, We are a people who have forgotten our roots. In many cases, we really don't seem to care. The church exists in a world of rapidly changing technology, a world which almost everyone has been assimilated into the incessant chatter of social media and real-time updates on everything from world politics to what your friend had for breakfast this morning. If we are to be relevant, or so we think, we too must be a people of the new and the now. The consequences of such ideas in the church are there for all to see. Numerous polls indicate widespread biblical and theological illiteracy. Numerous professing Christians do not grasp the contents of Scripture. 
those who have read the Bible very often have no idea what it means and how the various parts go together. A recent study sponsored by Ligonier Ministries indicates that a large percentage of professing Christians unwittingly hold views regarding the Trinity, Jesus Christ, sin, and salvation that are technically heretical. We are not in a good place, we are, but we are not the first to be in such a position. The people of Israel forgot the past with disastrous consequences. The medieval church forgot the past with disastrous consequences. But what do you do when you realize you've taken a wrong turn somewhere along your journey? You go back and seek to find the correct path. We should not view the past as something that is gone and therefore useless. We should look at the past more like the way someone on the second floor of a building looks at the foundation. The foundation was built before the remaining structure. It was built in the past. But the foundation is not something that can be discarded without catastrophic results. Amen. Amen. Great, great article. The article goes on. I'm not going to read it all, but it just struck me as I was reading and preparing for today that, man, that guy is right on. He is on the money. We are there. So it's nothing that changes from generation to generation, and so we must take heed. So as we turn to Jude's letter, I can't think of a more relevant book for our time than the Bible. One theologian said of the past, if you want to see what God is doing, watch the news and hold on to a Bible. And it's so true. Jude's epistle is a small book with only 25 verses, but it packs a big and weighty message. It's easy to understand, and Jude gets right to the point. I like Jude. I li I'm a kind of a guy like that. I like to get to the point. Less words are better sometimes, and so I like Jude for that. But uh, if you look at, at, Jude's, uh, at Jude's writings there, um, notice he is writing Jude chapter Chapter 1, uh, verse 1, chapter 1 was only one chapter, but Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And he says, beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But if you notice there, right in verse 1, Jude is writing to, first he says, those who are called. Secondly, beloved in God the Father and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And then he sandwiches in between that those verses and the verse 24 at the end, he says... Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So I want to call your attention to those verses because it's very important as we work through our time together that Jude wants us to have the idea that we are called, beloved, 
and kept. And God is able to keep us. And it's very important as we work through to see who, what the warning that Jude is giving to us as the church. Um, Jude begins with our security in Christ. He is writing to the church of his day, and he's also writing to the church of our day. The result of being called, beloved, and kept is found in verse 2. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. God's mercy in Christ produces peace and love within the Christian, or it ought to. God's mercy produces peace. Peace of God, peace with God. It also produces a love for God and for one another. It's a multiplied mercy. Don't miss that word. It's a multiplied mercy, peace and love, and, the, and it's the main point of Jude's letter is found in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Don't miss that word again. Multiplied in verse 2. As we consider the word multiply, you think about the great Bible truths of our salvation, such as election, redemption, sanctification, our union and identity in Christ, our unity with God in Christ, our future glorification, and more. There's so much that God has done for us in salvation. But what is this common salvation in faith? that has been handed down to us, the saints that Jude is writing about. Well, I believe it's the, the great truths of the gospel, the gospel of Christ. It's about what God has done for us and in us through Christ. Is it any wonder that right, Jude writes in verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. These truths should cause us to rejoice in God to be excited about the things of God. The church is called to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And this idea of contending earnestly carries with it the, this idea of a struggle or a, a fight for something. Uh, and that is the purpose of uh, Jews' letter. It's the truth of God, especially reliance upon Christ for salvation. In verse 3, notice the urgency. Jude writes that he was making every effort, which carries, again, the idea of hasty, being hasty, being diligent, being um, earnest. Uh, one writer says this about the word, quote, it possesses the idea of athletes, athletes or soldiers who in an effort to win find themselves intensely struggling competing, even fighting with all their might, and I would add, even to the death. So Jude is appealing to his audience to earnestly contend, to struggle or fight for the faith, the common salvation or the gospel. It's the body of truth that was handed down through the centuries to the church. Why? Well, he tells us in it's to warn and remind the church. Verse 4, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So he wants to call our attention to that 
to the idea that people will come in to the church, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 5 he says, Now I desire to remind you. There it is, the word remind. We need reminders so much. And so Jude goes on in this epistle with examples from the past to remind his hearers and us about the dangers of not taking heed to the gospel. He says, though you know all things once for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And he goes on. They were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, and they turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only message. There's quite a list there of what these false teachers would be doing or will be doing and are doing. Uh, Jews' opponents were antinomian and they were anti-authority. We see the same movements going on in our day. Just turn on the news. Look at your news app. Watch, look at the newspaper, news magazines. It's everywhere. Rebellion against the law, against law. It's just everywhere and growing rapidly. But notice in our text here, two truths about false teachers, as we are called to contend for the faith. The first one, Jude says that they creep in unnoticed, creep in unawares. It means to enter secretly, to slip in stealthily. They slither in like a snake, you know, come in. Um, and we must, we must as a church, individuals, be aware that error comes in very subtly and very secretly. If you notice, if you, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want to, Genesis 3, if you look at the, the account of, the, of Satan, the serpent, coming in to tempt Adam and Eve, and he, he talks to Eve, and he, he even quotes scripture. He quotes it. But there's a problem here with him quoting the scripture. Satan misquoted it and twisted it for his own device. So that's, a, that's the mark of a false teacher. Misquoting, twisting scriptures, and not speaking the truth, the truth that they speak error. But there's one thing, in, if you notice in the, in the garden, when, when Eve was tempted, her reply, her reply was she didn't, she added to the scriptures. So Satan twisted it, and Eve added to it. Right out of the gate. She hadn't even fallen yet. I find it very interesting. But, um, so really from the first humans, there's been a need to contend for the truth. So is it any wonder that we too have to do the same thing? Well, notice another truth, the second one. They are marked out for this condemnation. These teachers of false doctrine that Jude is referring to have been written about and are facing a divine appointment to judge, judgment. In verses 5 through 8, Jude lists five activities that describe the ungodly who creep into the church unnoticed. The first one, the first one is that 
they creep in and turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And this word licentiousness means an unbridled lust in excess and shamelessness. Again, if you look at our society today, you see these things happening. The second thing we see is that they creep in and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These, these things are taken right out of the text. It's not just simple observation. They deny our only master. To deny here doesn't necessarily they deny his existence, though some people do. They do. I, I don't know how you can deny history, but they do. <laughs> but it means to, uh, to refuse to believe, not to accept, to reject, or to refuse something offered. Denying the truth about Jesus Christ. And then uh, we move on in our text uh, in verses 5 through 7. Jude gives a brief list of Old Testament examples. The third thing we see is in verse 8. They creep in and defile the flesh. The fourth thing in verse 8 is they reject authority. And the fifth thing we see in verse 8, is a revile or speak evil of angelic majesties. Again, watch any news feed, watch any, read any news magazine, newspaper, you'll see these happening today in abundance. Well, as we move on in this, this small but very weighty letter from Jude, notice verses 5 through 19. Jude reminds us of how ungodliness manifested itself in several Old Testament examples. In verses 12 and 13, God characterizes them as empty and useless, and there is judgment coming to those who persist in such error. Verses 16 and 17, he says they are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Sounds similar to what Pastor Terry read in 1 Timothy 3. But notice in verse 16, he says, But you, beloved, ought to remember. So there it is again, this idea of being reminded of these truths. Well, Second Peter 3, 3 says this, Know first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Same idea. And as a good shepherd, Jude is sending out a warning to the church about those who come to the church with false doctrine. And I am thankful, personally, over the years, in this church, that God has blessed this church with faithful, faithful leaders who guard the truth of God. Well, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus, and he is leaving, and this is what he tells them. And notice, as I read, his urgency. As I look at this text, Acts 20, 28 through 31, I I see the responsibilities and marks of godly elders. Paul writes to the elders as he's leaving, pay careful attention to yourselves and 
to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained, obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering, there it is again, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, get this, to admonish everyone with tears. Do you understand Paul's passion there? His urgency, his emotion for the church, his care for the church, his care for the truth? It's there. Jesus also warned us about false prophets. In Matthew 7, 15 and 16, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, we have great Bible truths that the church in our day must contend earnestly for. Thanks to the grace of God in raising up men like the apostles, like the prophets, like the reformers, like current day pastors and teachers and theologians of our day. Praise God. Um, men like Peter Waldo of the 12th century, John Huss, John Wycliffe of the 14th century, and the reformers of the 16th century, and into the Puritans in the late 16th century and into the 17th century. Many of these men, and women, by the way, contended for the faith and gave with their lives so that we could have what we have today. I would highly recommend you and even maybe challenge you in some ways. I can only take it in small bites, but to, to get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and read that. You want to see a price that was paid for all we have in this room today. That's the, that's the place to go. The church must take Jude 1-3 seriously. Well, what's in store for the future? Well, I know what's in store for the future. We've been given a glimpse into it. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said this. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And if you read church history, it's there. That this is coming true before our very eyes. I want to ask you, as the church, will we as a church continue to contend earnestly for this salvation that was handed down to us? A little more personal, will you, will you contend in your own personal walk with God for this common salvation and faith that was given to us? We have been given the responsibility to contend for the faith in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in the grocery store, wherever you go. This is our duty. This is our calling. 
We are the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, called to contend for the faith, the gospel handed down through the centuries. Well, if you look into church history, as I said earlier, you'll see a, a history of those who have fought for the truth of the gospel. And so what I would like to turn our attention to right now is some lessons from the Reformation. Lessons from the Reformation about contending for the faith, which is still necessary today. So I'd like to fast forward from the first century of Jude to the 16th century Germany and take a look at what contending for the faith looked like in the 16th century and why it's so important for us today. So let's look at some lessons from the period of history known as the Protestant Reformation. The last Sunday in October is traditionally known as Reformation Sunday, which is the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. This year marked the year 501 since that day. October 31st, 1517 is the date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Very significant event in human history. It started the Protestant Reformation, and Reformation literally means restoration or renewal. It was the beginning of a rediscovery of the gospel. The church up to the 1500s, so the 16th century, had made had many faithful Christians contending for the truth there, had been significant early att earlier attempts to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Before Luther, men such as previously mentioned, mentioned John Haas, Peter Waldo, John Wycliffe, just to name a few, all of these men were, and many more, were forerunners of the Reformation and paid with their lives contending, contending for the faith. The Roman Catholic Church, which began in the 4th century with Constantine, a Roman emperor who converted to Christianity. But by Luther's day, the Catholic Church, which began in the 4th century, became excessively corrupt. By Luther's day in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had become a giant machine of religion, politics, wealth, excesses, and corruption at every level. It was so corrupt that several popes had mistresses in the Vatican and fathered children by them. Sounds like Jude 1.4, doesn't it? They turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. <coughs> One such corruption that the Roman Catholic Church invented was the selling of indulgences to the people. If you're not familiar with indulgences from the Catholic Church, it just means that people could pay money to reduce the amount of punishment one had to endure for sins after death. And they are still sold to this day. The money was used to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Well, in the early 1500s, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic monk in Germany, agonized over and struggled over how a person could become righteous before a holy 
and just God. Since Roman Catholicism is, is and was, was and is a works-based system and taught that a person must include good works in order to merit heaven, Luther found no hope in that at all, if ever attaining true righteousness. Well, Luther was a teacher of theology, and while he was teaching the epistles of, to Rome, the Roman epistle, and Galatians, Luther came to an understanding of the gospel, imagine that, by reading Romans and Galatians, by a careful reading and understanding of Romans 1, 16 through 17, God used that to save Luther. For in it the righteousness, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Another verse that gripped Luther was Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Much more then, verse 9, we have, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Luther was so gripped by, by being able to be righteous before God in God's sight that he, he, his life changed dramatically and to say that it changed would be an understatement. For the first time in Luther's life, he came to understand that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that a person is seen by God as righteous and just in God's sight. And these truths came to us by the authority of Scripture alone, for and to the glory of God alone. Luther also came to an understanding of the doctrine of imputation, which we have been learning about as we've been going through Romans, also known as the great exchange or double imputation, meaning that God places the repentance sinner sin on Christ and places the righteousness of Christ on the sinner and sees the sinner as just and righteous. So Luther was changed dramatically and had a huge effect on his life. So what happened between first century Jude and the 1500s? Well, the church didn't die out after the apostles and then became resurrected with the reformers. Like I said, you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're going to see a long line of people who contended for the faith. But by the church was very much alive through the centuries. Evidently, by 1517, though, God had had enough of Rome and raised up Martin Luther to contend for the faith. In 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses against the teaching of the Catholic Church on indulgences at the door in Germany, he was saying, in effect, I want to debate with the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. And at that time in medieval history, Making such a statement could get you killed very easily. There's no, there's no law, there's no lawyer, there's no judge, there's no jury, any of that. Off with his head, that would be the end of it. That's how they operated. It was a bold move by Luther, and it could have cost him his life. In the 16th century, the act of nailing documents to the door meant that it would be a public debate. 
So Martin Luther is widely acknowledged of having started the Reformation with his 1517 work on the indulgences. But that was just the beginning, really, of, uh, of the movement that would change the world. And, and I, again, if you look at world history, human history, you see God's hand moving. Because at that time, at that time, uh, keep in mind that the, the Gutenberg press, press had just been, had been invented about 1440. Uh, Columbus had discovered the New World in 1492, and these are significant things because when uh, Luther published his 95 Theses, which was in Latin, which was the scholar's language, his students took a copy of it off the door and printed it in German, the native tongue, the common language for all to read. So that was the Reformation getting underway, and God was getting the word out. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time, very quickly, I want to, again, remind us of the great truths that came out of the Reformation that, as a result of people contending for the faith. These five great truths are known as the five solas of the Reformation. They all concern salvation and how a person becomes saved or known as simply the gospel. The five solas are five Latin phrases that presented the core position held by those who adhere to the Protestant Reformation, which happened in the 16th century. They are sola scriptura, scripture alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and soli deo gloria, all to God's glory alone. And why Latin? Why why do we, we you know, still even use the Latin today? Well, simply, it's just been handed down through history. Latin was the common language due to the Roman influence uh, from the 1st to the 18th century, and even to, in some extent into the 19th century in higher education. And these uh, five solas were bought, brought together as a formal list after the Reformers and Puritans were off the scene. So the first one I'd like to do is go, quickly go through these in contrast to you, with you, for you, the idea of what Roman Catholicism teaches and what the reform has brought to us. First one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Roman Catholic view of scripture is this. And these are all, by the way, found, you can find these online. This is, this is right out of the catechism. Uh, they deny the sufficiency, they deny the sufficiency of scripture and it says this, the church to whom the transmission and the interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That's right out of the Catechism for the Catholic Church. Well, Scripture alone, the Reformers said, mean that the Scriptures alone are the final and highest authority. Everything that the Scriptures address are to be used as the final word on that topic. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 was read this morning. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
Nothing about tradition there. Nothing. When Martin Luther was interrogated in 1521, at the end he said this, this quote, unless I am convicted by, convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and counts because they have all contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, so God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me, God. Amen. When he made that statement, there was a bounty on Luther's head. Unfortunately, by God's grace, he escaped. The second one is Soli, Solus Christus. The Roman Catholic view taught uh, in the Roman Catholic Church did affirm that Christ was the only means of true salvation, but it adds intercession of the saints and Mary as an additional means of accessing God. And this is what it says, quote, If anyone says that it is an imposter to celebrate masses in honor of the saints, an imposter, in other words, if you, it's, it's a fakery, it's a lie, right? And for obtaining their intercession with God, as the church intends, let him be anathema. Well, interesting that in Christ, Christ alone says, uh, says this, 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So scripture trumps the Catholic Church, certainly, Christ alone. Third, sola gratia. The Catholic Church teaches that... Um, it denied that a person's sins are forgiven by the unmerited grace of God alone. It says this, Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. For the increase of grace and charity and for the attainment of eternal life. Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says different. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It has nothing to do with works. Nothing. Nothing. Sola fide, the fourth one. It comes to faith. Roman Catholicism condemns the idea of faith alone and says that salvation is dependent on faith and participation in the sacraments along with other things. Quote, if anyone says that by faith alone is, if anyone says that faith, that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. 
the Bible says it's by faith alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. The fifth one, soli deo gloria. The Roman Catholic Church largely says that they seek the glory of God. It is unfortunate that too much of the glory and adoration given is focused on the Pope and Mary. It says this in the Roman Catholic Catechism. By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners, and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. It goes on after speaking of the Church, her origin, mission, and destiny. We can find no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. So no man goes to Christ but by his mother. That's on the Vatican website. Encyclical of Pope Leo XIII on the Rosary. Wrong. For the glory of God alone, this means that God alone is the one who is to receive all glory. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give it to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 43.7 Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I am formed, who I have formed, even whom I have made. So there you have it. The glory belongs to God alone. So in light of the Roman Catholic eras, the reformers renewed the truths of the five solas from the scriptures, from scripture truth alone, as a set of declarations that stood in opposition to the Roman Catholic heresies. So why why is the important what is the importance of the five solas today? Well, as we see much of the church leaving the scripture and adopting a more man-centered, pragmatic faith and practice. We need to depend greatly on the scriptures. The five souls provide the foundation for a strong and true God-centered faith and practice because they are built on scripture alone. These scripture truths are vital to the church as we contend for the faith. One writer says it this way, Quote, a return to the first sola. Sola scriptura should be our battle cry. The scriptures are the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. When the Bible speaks, God's people should hear, heed, and obey the word by his grace. Not only this, the Bible proclaims the truth of the other solas, namely that salvation is by Grace alone, through faith in Christ, man has not been saved for his own purposes, but for God's purpose and glory. Thus, man's greatest need is indeed Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. I'll close with this. Going back to Jude, verse 1, 
to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now to him who is able, in verse 24, to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God and Savior, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be majesty, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We, mu we must remember the truths as we consider contending for the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning as we are called to contend, we are called to remember, to be reminded of your great work in history, your great work in the scriptures, through the men and women of faith down through the centuries. We thank you for preserving your truth, for resurrecting your truth through the time of the Reformation and even to our own day. We thank you for men of our own day who fight valiantly for the truth to preserve it for the next generation. Help us to do likewise. Help us to not waver, to not shrink back from doing the right thing. We thank you for this day again. Pray that we go away reflecting on these things and the importance of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.